Well, thanks again for listening to the Park Hills Podcast. If you want any more information on the things we're doing, sermon series, podcasts, things like that, go to the Park Hills Church app or parkhillschurch.com. Pastor Alex. What's up, Chris? Hey, first of all, great job with this passage. Uh, I thought this was a very good sermon that covered a lot of stuff in a very good period of time. Oh, thanks. You did not go too long. Nobody questioned (laughs) anything. (laughs) I love how we probably all now go just as long as you, but you carry that mantle on your shoulders of being the long preacher. The main reason is because Mark, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, was peace be upon him. yeah was a uh, thirty-two to thirty-five minute sermon guy, and he that was just his thing. And I can't do that. I mean, I can if I have to, but like I, I've told you multiple times and other people, I just use the time given to me. So when I get up there, <laughs> I look at the clock and I go, okay, I know exactly how much time I got. Let's add a, this piece or let's take this out. So I've trimmed as much as, you know, I've gone down as a 25-minute sermon because a missions moment went long, if you remember that. Uh, I did. Bo and, and multiple of you pulled me aside. I'm like, man, that was, you got through it really quick. I'm like, I can. It's not a question. of I just want to use the time given to me. But, yeah, you use about the same amount of time, and yet nobody cares, uh, which is great. Yeah. And also nobody brings it up to you because, if, you know, I, I have that mantle. Nobody else does. Yeah, so. heavy, heavy holds of the crown, right? <laughs> Heavy as the head that holds the crown. But with that said, there's a couple of fun little tidbits here that, you know, we say on the podcast a lot, our goal is to bring in the pieces that maybe we didn't have time for. That's not to say that we don't really have time. If we wanted to, we could preach an hour and a half long sermon every single week. These are more of the things, and we're not minimizing the text, but these are more of the things that maybe don't really drive the passage. Don't, they're not really what we're supposed to preach as we work through it. Uh, but what it is, is it's the stuff that may, might add some detail to the text, but it's not the most important things to talk about, right? I mean, right. It's kind of the bits and pieces that like, oh, that's interesting. And sometimes we even incorporate them, but we cannot go nearly as deep right. into them because, you know, what is the purpose of a sermon it's, it's different than a TED Talk, right? We're not just right. getting up there giving giving like, hey, this is interesting information that maybe you can think about later. That's more what the podcast is for. Hey, this right. is interesting information that you can think about later. Right. The purpose of a, permin- uh, sorry, purpose of a sermon yeah. is to bring us to a point of us meeting God, right. hearing from him, and then changing our life because of it. Right. And we as a sermon team work really hard to break down the passage, find the point that the passage is trying to give us. And I think you did a great job of the Lord is, is wanting us to see that he will not only take care of physical needs, but he takes care of the deeper need, which is the spiritual need, this heart that needs to be softened. And it can only be softened by him. He proves it through his physical uh, miracles, but then there's a deeper issue going on. And I right. found it interesting, like you pointed out, this is really the main point of the text was even after all the things that the disciples saw, they still had a hardness of heart. Right. And these are the disciples. These are the guys that should have it by now. Right. You know, some of the crowds you can sort of get away with not them not understanding who Jesus really is. But here the disciples, they're not quite getting it. 
And with that said, there's a couple of little details in the text that, again, don't really preach it to the extent that we need it to, but they're interesting things to kind of point out. So one of the big ones you you thought of and looked at the text is this, the way that Jesus sat everybody for the feeding of the 5,000. Yeah, there's kind of this like undercurrent in this passage of a, it's like a militaristic theme going on. So when Jesus feeds the 5,000, uh, first he calls them uh, the sheep without a shepherd that term, and I read a couple passages during the sermon, but the broader context around those passages that I read is a militaristic, there's a militaristic idea behind it that like joining, get, gathering these people together and giving them leadership to go accomplish a purpose that is in some ways has a military overtone or undertone to it. And so sheep without a shepherd, also the grouping of the hundreds and fifties, those could be understood as allusions to this as well. So there's kind of this idea that Jesus is gathering these people and what is, to to back up a little bit, what is the expectation of the Messiah at this point in time? The Jews would have expected a Messiah to conquer spiritually, but also conquer in a military way, right? And Mm -hmm. in their situation, that's Rome. Like Rome is an oppressor. Mm-hmm. Rome is occupying their territory. Rome is collecting taxes from them. So they see, hey, this Messiah, when we read in the Old Testament, all these conquering type themes, mm-hmm. that Messiah is going to conquer the Romans. And so there's a thought here that maybe what Jesus is doing, among other things, it's not that he's not making the point that we talked about in the sermon, but in addition to that point, he's trying to, gather their expectations just to let them down. Mm. Like he's intentionally doing things that would make them think, wow, this is the military leader. Look, he's gathered all of us. And now he, he's seen us as sheep without a shepherd. So now he's becoming that shepherd. He's becoming that leader and he's bringing us together. And then he's feeding us and sustaining us and, and setting us up in our groups. All these things would be would have these undertones of a military, mm-hmm. but then intentionally just lets them all down by dismissing them. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you you think I'm going to be the military leader? Look at all these things I'm going to do to build up that expectation. And then, hey, all right, get out of here, guys. I'm going to go walk across this lake real quick. Yeah. Yeah, and that's interesting because if you think about it, we'll see words like centurion later on in the text. And so I know the Roman military, you know, legion was typically a group of 2,000 soldiers or more, but usually those were broken down into having a centurion that led 100 troops. That's where the word century comes right. from, right? So the centurion, you know, being a, a military commander, I don't know if it'd be like a lieutenant or a captain today, but, you know, overseeing a number of different, I don't want to say tribes or clans, but, you know, yeah. a group, groupings of soldiers. You might have someone who is responsible for five or 10 men and then, you know, this centurion would be in charge of those individuals who are in charge of the fives and tens. And so you start to see it and you go, oh yeah, I can see how they would maybe come to that opinion that this is a, this is a military leader uh, breaking everybody up into fifties and hundreds, just like the Romans would. There's 5,000 of them, which is way more than a legion. And going back to even the fact that he fed them, one of the major issues, especially in, in ancient times, is the military needs supply lines that, that we we still have these issues today, right? I mean, there's still sometimes yeah. issues where, uh, you know, Napoleon famously started to lose when he pushes into Russia, right? And same with Hitler. Like, once you go into Russia, you can't <laughs> fight two fronts. And so if you think about the supply lines that are needed to sort of keep a military moving, 
think about some of these folks jumping to these conclusions of, holy cow, we have a leader who can provide out of five loaves of bread and a couple fish for all of us. We never have to worry about supply line. We can go attack Rome right now and just take it over. So I could see maybe where some people might have jumped to that conclusion and some of the authors that you're talking about sort of bring that up. But what are your thoughts on that? Like how, how deep do you want to go with the militaristic king idea? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced that that's what Mark is trying to do here. And I'm not saying, no, it's definitely not. I just, when I read this, I'm not really convinced that this, the point Mark is trying to make, or one of the points he's trying to make is the military letdown. I think he's so much more driving in the, look at what Jesus is capable of mm-hmm. doing and the disciples don't get it. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. There, yeah. There's a lot in there lot written about it. I just didn't really find it convincing, which is why I didn't make it into the sermon at all, but why I bring it up here, because I, I think it is, th- there's an interestingness to it that, yeah, it's possible, but I'm just not convinced. Sure. And I can't, I, I like that, and I, I'm not convinced either. And I think one of the things that I find interesting, I don't know where I read this, so this is, I can't even give them the proper, you know, quotation here, because I have no idea how long ago it was that I read this. But I remember seeing in a commentary a long time ago, some kind of connection with this groupings of fifties and hundreds. Interestingly, that's what Moses does with his people in the wilderness, which back to your point might have a militaristic, and it's not your point, you're pointing out what other people are saying, but it might have a militaristic aspect, right? The, the slaves of, of Israel who have left Egypt and are moving to the promised land broken into fifties and hundreds does start to align them, makes it easier to march, makes it easier to move to where you need to go. So there, you could say Moses is a militaristic leader there, although I don't know if people have really read the battles. It, they didn't go well for, <laughs> yeah. for Israel. So I don't know that it's as much of a is- militaristic thing. It might actually be, uh, and this is what the person was making the case that I read, was it might be a, a mosaic aspect, right? It might be that Jesus is really the better Moses here, right. which I, I would be way more compelled by that. I'm sure you would be too. Yeah, and, and <clears throat> even with the term sheep without a shepherd, right? right. Because Moses was a literal shepherd for a time and then went and shepherded God's people mm-hmm. when they did not have a shepherd. And so I could see that, yeah, Jesus coming in as the the new and better Moses mm-hmm. and then feeding as Moses fed in the wilderness with the manna mm-hmm. and quail. Here Jesus is feeding not with something external but creating creating the food himself. Sure. Yeah, bread and meat comes out of just a, mir- a miracle that he does instead of waiting for heaven to provide it. Right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'd be way more compelled by that argument. Um, we'll talk in a few episodes when we get to the feeding of the 4,000. We'll circle back and deal with some of the numbers aspects of this, but, but that'll be later. One of the things that I think you and I have had to confront a number of times in ministry is miracles like this, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, uh, and if folks aren't aware of these things, uh, we're not really wanting to make you aware of them because they're kind of they're arguments that kind of push back against the Bible. At the same time, if you are aware of them, we do want to deal with them. So, so you and I have talked a couple times about this, not on the podcast yet. But so, what are some of the attempts to despiritualize these miracles? What, what are some of those things that you see? Yeah, well, about? if we if we look at the history of this, like at least I'm sure it's been happening for hundreds and thousands of years. But I first see it really with the Jefferson Bible, right? If you're familiar with the Mm -hmm. Jefferson Bible, this is the Thomas Jefferson Jefferson Bible, where he just, like, 
cut out everything he didn't like and had like half a New Testament left and basically cut out all the things that were supernatural or spiritual. And then what was the one in the 70s? Was it the Jesus Project? Was that what it was called? I don't know. What was that one? Ah, man. I should, oh, it's all good. I should, I should know this. It's bad, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, It was like the, or the historical, I don't remember. I'll look it up while you're talking. Um, <laughs> but but it's it was this idea that they were going to try to figure out the reality of Jesus. We, you know, there's a lot of crazy spiritualness in the New Testament, but we're going to find out because most people, there are very few people that deny the historicity of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. But did he really do these things? And so they look at the New Testament and then they say, well, there's a lot of value in the New Testament because there's eyewitness reports. These guys were there. It was accepted by early people. So you can't just like toss out the New Testament Thomas Jefferson style and just say, I'm going to throw out the pieces I don't like and claim they didn't happen. Mm -hmm. But instead they try to de-spiritualize each one. And both of these miracles here get de-spiritualized a lot. So the first one is the feeding of the 5,000. The thought is that Jesus didn't actually multiply anything supernaturally. Instead, when he took out his food and shared it with his disciples, that was a great example to the 5,000 people who then all sat down in their groups of hundreds and fifties and shared the food that they had amongst them. Mm -hmm. And so they try to say this story isn't really a miracle story per se. It's a great example from a great teacher type of story. We should be like Jesus yep. because he shares what he has when he's out in a desolate place. We should do the same thing just like the people shared what they had. It takes out any miraculous aspect of this. And the second is the walking on the water, that Jesus didn't really walk on water he walked on a sandbar because he saw his disciples out there struggling mm -hmm. and knew the pathway that he could get close to them and brought them comfort. And isn't, isn't that a great story of a great leader who's willing to like risk walking out on this sandbar through the water, right. anywhere from ankle deep to maybe waist deep to get out to the disciples. Um, but both of those are just so, at least in my mind, just so clearly ridiculous if you're taking, if you're trying to look at the New Testament and say, "Oh, let's let's make these stories work," it's clear in the feeding of the five thousand that they're in a desolate place and they've been there all day. Mm -hmm. Like nobody's got days worth of food with them. And then there's thousands of people out of these thousands. The disciples, their discussion is like, "Where are we going to send them to buy bread? Yep. We, there's nowhere that we can get food." You would think the disciples would say something along the lines of like, "Why don't we just ask everyone to share?" Right. And, and then the walking on water, like the disciples, some of these guys are, you know, professional fishermen. They're not getting stuck on sandbars right. where Jesus like walks out to them. And then Peter also says, you know, not in Mark, but in, in other gospels, we have the recording where uh, Peter walks on the water mm -hmm. to him and then sinks like, oh, he just stepped off a sandbar. I don't think so. Like, right. That, that just seems a little, a little, there's more like mental gymnastics we have to do to de-spiritualize them mm -hmm. than to just understand them spiritually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot there to, to kind of play with. So while you're looking that up, let me uh, uh, deal with this a little bit. I, I'm with you. The, the de-spiritualizing the gospels argument never really works for me for various reasons. One, just like you said, there's a lot of things within the text that sort of say that, which I wonder if, you know, as the, as the eyewitnesses to these events are doing things, if 
people are arguing with them about details and they're going, oh, no, 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 no. It, you know, I can almost imagine someone saying, well, was it just a sandbar? And Peter going, no, it wasn't a sandbar. It was a storm. Even if it was a sandbar in a storm, that, that disappears in a storm because the waves push it away, you know. So I could almost see them making sure that the right details get in to show people, no, 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 no. What you're thinking is, is there is not there. So coming back to what you're saying, you know, the, the fact that they're pointing out how could we possibly feed this many people, that it begs the question. They're not just asking them to pull out their lunches. They are supernaturally providing uh, in something amazing. On top of that, it also deals with the Old Testament. And so this is one of those things where sometimes I, I struggle with the pastors who want to unlatch the Old Testament from the New. They, they go together. Uh, they totally go together. There are so many Psalms and other prophetic words that talk about the Messiah bringing bread. Even the fact that he was born, as we talked about uh, a while ago, he was born in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. So there's these little, little details that the text gives us that I don't want to read too much into them, but they're all just laying there waiting for you to notice, look at what Jesus is capable of doing. So he's the bread of life. Well, how cool is it that he then feeds everybody, right? And, it, and you actually have that in the John 6 account of the feeding of the 5,000. He actually uses these phrases and then feeds the 5,000. So if it was just, I'm the bread of life, by the way, pull out your lunch, that completely denies that whole aspect. It denies all of the little Old Testament nuggets talking about uh, you know, the Messiah being able to feed with bread. And on top of that, the wind and the waves aspect, there are, again, so many Psalms that talk about how this individual is going to be able to manipulate the weather, manipulate nature itself, and that it will answer his call and what he wants. So why wouldn't Jesus be able to walk on the water if he really is who he says he is? So anybody who tries to despiritualize it actually denies the messianic aspect of who Jesus is. And on top of that, unlatches what the Bible's really trying to do, which is show him to be exactly who the Old Testament says he is. And he fulfills that in more ways than, than we possibly can imagine. When I was learning how to share the gospel years ago, and this might be helpful for some folks, uh, we talked about the fact that for someone to claim that they're the Messiah, if they were able to fulfill eight of the prophecies of the Messiah from the Old Testament, the chances of someone, just a random person, like if I said tomorrow, I'm the Messiah, Here's, here's eight miracles I've done. If, if somebody can claim that eight miracles have been done, the chances of that are similar to, and this is, this is such a great illustration, similar to filling the state of Texas knee-deep in silver dollars, marking one of them, throwing it into the, this huge sea of all of them, and then blindfolding someone and saying, go pick out a silver dollar, picking it up, saying, this is the one, and it happens to be the right one. That's just eight of the miracles. So the mm -hmm. chances are so astronomically ridiculous that someone would be able to claim eight of them. What's amazing is Jesus fulfills 300. Right. So no matter which one of these you want to try to break down, there's no way. The, he is who he says he is. And the gospel writers are showing us this. The gospel writers are also the very first generation of eyewitnesses. So they are the ones who are right there. They see it, you know. Paul is convinced and others are convinced. Like if you start to build this up, you go, something very significant happened, right? One of my one of my profs talked about the Exodus. We have so few details about the Exodus actually happening, but what my this is James Hoffmeyer said, um, what we know is that the collective conscience of the Israelites, something very significant happened. That alone makes it true. 
let alone the fact that there are a couple little things that we've found that prove the exodus. But even if we never find it all, the fact that this collective conscious of these people say, we know this happened, makes it true. Well, in that case, how do you not look at the collective conscious of Christians who, starting in the beginning of this, these individuals who were there face-to-face with Jesus watching him do these things, even if they got a detail or two wrong, which they didn't, but even if they did, you can't deny all of these miracles happening, all of these things happening. He is who he says he is. Right, right. And like we're moving kind of into the apologetics Mm -hmm. discussion now. How do we know the Bible's true? How do we know we can take it at face value? How do we know Jesus? I often, and in my... Even in my moments of doubt, like, oh, man, I've this is my job, and I've given my whole life to this. Is this really real? Like, am I just duped? Because I'm, I'm also claiming that a lot of other people have been duped by people, right? Like, other religions, if, if I'm exclusive to Jesus, and I believe the whole world is exclusive to Jesus, then a lot of other people are getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. If I truly believe that, man, how do I, how do I know I know I know? And... I go back to the resurrection of Jesus. I think similarly, so many eyewitnesses, so many people that were there that recorded it, and then those writings survived, and and there's this collective conscience of this guy died and then came back to life. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, then all the rest of it is like a sub point. You know, if like breaking bread and make multiplying bread and walking on water and all the other pieces, a burning bush that doesn't burn up and a guy who gets swallowed by a fish and comes back. Like if I, all of those are like, man, those are some tricky miracles, but that guy was dead and he came back to life three days later. Mm-hmm. Like, and he wasn't in, and this is where like the, the whole like despiritualized, well, Jesus just swooned. He kind of like passed out for three days. No, he was dead. Like spear in the heart dead and three days he comes back and he's totally fine. Like right. not limping around. We got him back to health real good. He is totally fine. Mm-hmm. There's all these witnesses, all these lives that have completely changed because they are convinced of that fact. If you, if I start there, then that gives me peace and comfort looking at the rest of everything else. Like, wow. And, and even if other enlightened people from other religions are purporting some sort of truth none of them died mm-hmm. and then came back and so I, I gotta throw all my chips in the guy who was dead and isn't anymore right and then if he starts saying things like hey i broke bread and multiplied it hey i walked on water yep. i healed this guy like okay well i guess if you died and came back to life i can i can handle all the other stuff right. yeah so yeah the the thing i was thinking of was called the jesus seminar yep yeah 1985 started so that's so, Close to the 70s. Yeah. I said said 70s or 80s. It started building in the 70s. And you're totally right. And I I was just reading, too, while you were just talking. We were giving each other a chance to do some research. But the the Jefferson Bible is actually handed out to every senator coming in from 1904 to the 1950s. Wow. And then they stopped doing it. And in the 1990s, they revived the tradition and began mailing it to every member of Congress. So I find it interesting that our country is just sort of known for this this one Bible that takes out all the miracles and the, the amazing things that the Lord did. Yeah. So all that to say, you know, you can, you might, if you just listen to this, you might understand oh, these are some of the reasons why we didn't go into ton of detail in the sermon, right? That this, these are the things that bog you down and don't really preach the text, but I think they're fun, interesting details that kind of uh, dig into it and, and kind of work on it. One of the things that you brought up 
uh, and we can deal with this pretty quickly, is there's a ton of geographic issues in the book of Mark. Yeah, and and I I had a hard time following them. First, you know, this this passage... <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> I know. was uh, starts, or not starts, they're, they're in Bethsaida. No, they're moving to Bethsaida. Uh, and then they he ends up in Gennesaret, yep. which at first I was like, oh, if you look at chapter 5, verse 1, he's in a place called the Gerasenes. Is that just like a different reading of that? No, it's they're different places completely. So I'm like, oh, well, that doesn't work. Where's Gennesaret? I don't know. Nobody knows. Why does nobody know where Gennesaret is? We know kind of where it is, but and and like, was it across the lake or not? So I didn't I didn't just throw up my hands and be like, ah, oh, whatever. But I I emphasized and focused less on on how they ended up in different places. Uh, but I I think Chris, you have more of an idea of what's going on than I do. So you you drive the bus now. Yeah. So just to be clear some of these things have been lost to history and I, I want us to know and just say this kind of, you know, out loud, perhaps once and for all to let people know, yes, there's a ton of digging going on in Israel. There's a ton of things that are being found. We might answer all these questions eventually, but you have to understand there's the times that the Bible was mostly written are some of the most dynamic periods in human history, right? Mm-hmm. Back to my Exodus comment that I made earlier from James Hoffmeyer, one of my professors. The Part of the reason why we haven't found a ton for the Exodus is the Egyptian kingdoms themselves underwent multiple revolts and complete over, you know, overhauls and upheavals over a period of about 250 years. I mean, multiple dynasties that only last decades or a little, you know. Yeah. And so in the middle of that, if you think about a group of people moving into a country and wanting to take over, they tear everything down and, and rebuild it themselves, or they create a new history. Yeah, and some of them, like, intentionally, we want to erase the former Correct. history to establish ourselves. Because, I mean, especially Egypt, right? Pharaoh believes that he is God. Sure. And so if there is a previous God that is God before me that I am not descendant of, I should maybe try to get rid of all memory of them. Sure. So that nobody ever comes in challenge. It's kind of, it's like the Lord of the Rings thing, right? Totally. Like Aragorn is supposed to be king, but, you know, what is it? Uh, Denethor's on the throne, yep. and he's like, you know, Gondor has no king. Gondor. But he's only a steward. But he's right? only a steward. <laughs> right, right. But it's kind of like... Totally. And then Aragorn comes back. So so anyway, yeah. the Egyptians, they're like worried, like maybe a descendant is lurking out there. Sure. If I wipe out all memory of him, sure. then, then nobody will challenge my... And these dynasties are, are families, right? Yeah. So you have no bloodline to the last family. How do you make yourself the king? The same thing is happening with Greeks. The same thing is happening with the Romans. And so no matter what point in history we're talking about, whether it's you know the Babylonian exile, even that, you know the Assyrians take out Israel, and then the Babylonians wipe them out within a couple of years, and then the Babylonians are the ones that come and actually take out Judah. So if you think about how much upheaval happens there, think about the Greeks and Alexander the Great does an amazing job of conquering, but dies really young. Like sad, you know. That's Too why soon. you're that's why you're named after him. That's a, right. You're his namesake. I've uh, now outlived Alexander the Great. You I have. Just want to let everyone praise know. the <laughs> praise the Lord for that. We're all thankful for that. But he dies really young and then la- leaves his kingdom to the Ptolemies and they break it into a basically a tetrarchy, and they don't agree with each other and they fight with each other all the time about this. And so you think about even within. The, you know, the remainders of the Greek 
civilization, the remainders of what the Romans did. And the Romans didn't really like the Jews a ton. They have multiple rebellions they put down. 70 AD is the key one where they wipe out just about everything. So you can imagine just with that alone, think of how many names might disappear to history. You know, rocks that are thrown into the Sea of Galilee, things that are buried, things that are destroyed, burned, you know, just completely ripped apart. So all that to say, <laughs> this is, that's my cop out for mm-hmm. this, this next statement. A lot of the names that we think are for sure, some of them we are sure on. Jerusalem, there's no question where Jerusalem yeah. is. Uh, you know, Goshen in the land of Egypt, we know where that is. Sea of Galilee, it's still there. Sea of Galilee is still there. It's still, <laughs> although it's way smaller than it used to be sure. and potentially lower at points than it used to be. So you think, you know, is it possible that certain parts of this were closer to the sea at the time? Yeah. Is it possible that some of this was under the sea for, for a period of time? Yeah. Is it, you know, so you look at all of that, the word Gennesaret, we think that it's the town or the region just to the west of Capernaum. At least that's where uh, they have really placed the feeding of the 5,000. But all that to say, when I took the group to Israel just a couple of weeks ago, and then you know we're going to go again in January, the you get a sense really quickly when you're there that some of this is tradition, and a lot of that tradition was set up in 200 AD, 300 AD, as people moved back to the region who now cared about Christianity more than they did Judaism. And they try to find these places and they say, maybe this is it, maybe this is it, maybe this is it. And they build churches there and they say, this is clearly it. Mm-hmm. You can make a case, for example, Bethsaida is considerably east from Capernaum and Gennesaret is considerably west of Capernaum. Well, both of those things are named in these stories. So where are they? That's the question. And if you find a really good map, and I would really recommend you know, pretty much anything by Barry Beitzel, for example, you know, he's a Trinity prof who, he's the one that most geologists or, ge- you know, geographers that I've met who love Bible stuff, they bring up his name at some point, right? He is just a master at this. And he spent his whole life writing maps and that kind of thing. You know, the Moody Atlas of the Bible uh, is a, probably the best one that I've ever seen. It's worth the money if, you, if you're thinking about it. If you go there, you will sometimes find things like, the word transfiguration, question mark, you know, <laughs> and you'll find it three spaces on the map. And you're like, where did it happen? Yeah, that's the question. And so Gennesaret is one of those big things. The Gerasenes is also a bit open to discussion about where it really is. Gergesa is the place that we most likely attach to the demoniac. Right. Because it's right at the base of a hill uh, and there's a city on top of the hill called Hippos. And that's where, you know, the pig farmers might have been. And you start to put that together. You look at it. You go, okay, that makes sense. There's a hill that they can run down and go into the sea. But we're not totally sure. And that's okay. It doesn't, the the location doesn't matter as much as maybe we want it to sometimes. And you'll sometimes find, you know, geographers that kind of fight with each other uh, about this goes there, this goes here. A lot of it's just opinions. People have strong opinions about whatever. I think the most important thing for me when I think about geography in the Holy Land is, it happened here. It may not have happened right where you're at, but you start to get a feel for it. You see it, and you go, "Oh, that makes a lot of t- that makes a lot of sense." You know, I can make a strong case that the feeding of the five thousand might have been the same as the Sermon on the Mount, right? You'll notice mm-hmm. that in the Chosen, they broke the two up. They they're they're separate from each other. Uh, I don't know. There, but Matthew doesn't really. Uh, you know, we'll get to that in a 
couple of, you know, like a year and a half, basically. Matthew has some interesting details that sort of make you go, is this the same event or is it not the same event? John, the same thing, right? He's teaching for a while. Uh, you know, did he reteach the Sermon on the Mount? And, and they're all sitting and gathering, and then he goes, all right, who's going to feed what? We know that it's near the Sea of Galilee, but if you were there in Israel, you'd see the Sea of Galilee is right next to all of these things in, you know, Capernaum and Bethsaida. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's kind of hard to do for a podcast because you can't see it. Maybe I'll attach a map if I'm able to to this episode, and, and you can look at it in the show notes. Um, if not, just type in Jesus in Galilee in Google, and you'll find a ton of maps that are just fun to look at. But just know some of this is a little bit up for grabs. Yeah, the, the Moody Bible Atlas, that's Beitzel, the one that we all had to— Okay, I'm sure Chris has it too. Yep. I don't know if I ever actually bought it. I think I just borrowed it. Anyway, uh, you can get a Kindle version for 20 bucks, which that is a steal. The hardcover's 45 Yeah. But but the hardcover's so pretty. I know. It's a table. It's a table book. So, well, hey, everybody, this is a good episode. Give me a lot of things to think about. And again, not that these things are unimportant to the text. They're very important, but they're things that... It would just bog us down in the sermon, and it's more fun to put them here and, and let you kind of process them and think about them. So there's a lot of helpful information today. Hopefully you find it helpful. But the key is, really, we, we just want you to experience Jesus, see him live out the life that he wants you to live. Anything you'd add to that? Uh, sounds good to me. All righty. 